In our series turn, today we are talking about justification, but justification with a small j. We know that word justification in the scriptures and of course in theology, that meaning of that word that means that legal gavel has come down for us in the courtroom of heaven because of our Savior Jesus Christ who though we are the guilty, we have been set free by His blood, by Him taking on our sin, by standing in our place. But today I want to talk about justification in terms of the reason that we have done something or our actions. You know, it can be used in both a negative and a positive way. For instance, that word justification can mean when we try negatively to squirm out of blame for something, when we want to say that it's not my fault, we often justify ourselves so that we can shed that blame. But positively, too, it can be used to say that an action or decision that we made was indeed right based on the things that we did. What I mean by that, for instance, there's an example of a young woman who had received a job at a rug-making plant. When she arrived at the plant, the first thing that she saw was a sign that hung over the machinery that said, if the thread becomes tangled, call the foreman. Well, as she worked on the machinery, indeed, her thread did become tangled. But she said to herself, you know, I've worked at sewing for many, many years. I bet I can use my skill and get this thread untangled. And the more she worked, the more it became tangled. Till finally she did indeed have to call the foreman. And when he came, she said, you know, I did my best to try and untangle this thread. And the foreman said, no. You didn't do your best. Your best would have been to call me. You see, that's how we can use justification sometimes in a positive way to say we have that skill, we have that ability, we know how to fix this, we know how to do these things. We often believe that in life our accomplishments, the things that we've done, the stuff that we know, those things that define us are the things that allow us to say, I can do this by myself. You know, we see that a lot of times play itself out, I think, in two different realms. Kids often, when they're playing together, talk about the things that they have, not what they've accomplished yet, because they haven't. But you hear them say, well, my house is bigger than your house, or we have a new car, or I've got the latest cell phone or the latest game, and they are kind of trying to one-up each other. And as we get older and as we accomplish things and as we earn other things, then we compare in a different way. We talk about my paychecks bigger than you or my realm of responsibility and my employees are larger than yours. Maybe my promotions have come faster. We're impressed with the things that we have done. I say that as a preface all to what Paul is saying today as we open up that epistle lesson in his letter to the Philippians because he's talking about a list of accomplishments. And it's a list of accomplishments that truly meant something to Paul in his life. Hear those words again. Paul says this, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I love that Paul says that, faultless, because that was the attitude of the Pharisees. They knew what was right. They were the ones who were the standard for holiness throughout Israel. You know, we saw that interchange today when in their righteousness with Jesus, they believed that they knew that he was not the person who was sent to them to be the Messiah, and yet Jesus used the scriptures to show them their errors in their way. For Paul, his pursuit in life of this holiness it was all that he had, was everything that he used in life so that he could have that standing. He believed that that holiness he had achieved through, as he says, the flesh, gave him a standing before God, that God would smile on him, that God was somebody who looked upon him as a pinnacle of the society in those days. You see, the problem is that Paul had, and the problem that we often have with ourselves in believing the things that we have done and believing about our accomplishments, is that they begin to take on a life of their own. We get so wrapped up in those things that we think it's who we truly are in life and all we have to offer, and we believe, like the Pharisees, that we have moved to a place that we should be called on. We should give our opinions. We are the experts in many things. And the problem is with that, that often in our lives, in that pursuit, those things can obliterate the truth. I mean that in the terms that we start to believe something about ourselves that simply isn't true. That's true of a group of four sisters who at the turn of the 19th century got together and decided that they were brilliant at acting and singing, and so they wrote a script for themselves. They were known as the Cherry Sisters. They decided that they were so good that they would go on the stage, and so they began in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. It became quite a local thing that people would come to see them, but they came to see them because they were so incredibly bad. In fact, it got to the point where they had to put up an iron fence in front of the stage because people would bring vegetables to throw at these girls. They had no clue that people really weren't just simply engaging in it. Finally, it happened, someone in Broadway had heard about the girls and came to see them, and he offered them in that day $1,000 a week to come to New York to appear on a Broadway stage, not because he thought they were that good, but because he couldn't believe they were as bad as they were. He figured this is an easy way to make money. People will come to see this like they would any sideshow. So they came to Broadway, and they appeared on Broadway for seven years. The house was always packed. People came and, again, shook their heads, could never believe how bad they were at acting, how bad they were at singing. It was just, in fact, a comedy to them. Well, when they finally hung it up, they had amassed some $200,000 in those days, which was a lot of money. But even when they finally finished they still thought in their heads that they were really the best actresses and the best singers, and that's why they had had this career on Broadway. They never truly realized how bad they were. 
You see, they believed in their heads something that just wasn't true. They had made themselves believe an illusion about their abilities and their talents. Paul gives us that list of things, things that were important, that were his identity in Israel. And then something happened to Paul. Paul met Jesus, and Paul's world turned upside down. And that which was most important to him in life, that's which what's made his life, which molded him, that gave him self-confidence in himself that he drew from for his abilities. Suddenly, Paul realized and said in these words, I now count as loss. Loss. You know, Paul didn't simply mean that from having that experience with Jesus, that Jesus was simply now an add-on to all these other things that Paul had accomplished. It meant that Paul realized everything in the world that he had accomplished till he had met Jesus was worth nothing anymore compared to the wonders and the grace and the forgiveness he found in Jesus. Werner Elliott is a theologian, and he writes these words as he comments on what Paul truly means when he says to regard everything as loss. I have this on the screen. He says this, On their missionary journey, the disciples are to dispense with bread and bag and money in their belts. They are to leave children, spouse, home, businesses. They are told to hate one's own father, mother, wife, children, family, and even one's own life, or they cannot be my disciple. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. Jesus removes himself from his own family, accepts no advice from his mother, has no home of his own, refuses to be made king, and will not avail himself to celestial powers. Even if we have nothing in this life, Jesus still demands our own life. A total renunciation of all this earthly life offers, not just avoiding them. Abraham doesn't simply say to Isaac, we are no longer family. He is willing to destroy their relationship by Isaac's sacrifice. Those are hard words to hear. But Paul's saying that, that anything that gets in the way in this life of Jesus is garbage, is loss. Why does Paul say that? Because he goes on to tell us that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, in his previous life, his self-created righteousness by all he had done, by all he had accomplished, were never enough for him once he knew Jesus Christ to stand in the presence of God. They couldn't provide that justification for him that would allow him on judgment day to bring what he had done versus what Christ had done. Paul realized in his accomplishments that they were worth nothing and that what Christ had given him through faith was indeed everything. That's why he could go on to say, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection 
and participation in his sufferings. See, Paul's not asking there in that participation in sufferings to go through exactly what Jesus did, but he wants to understand putting to death, as Paul often says, those accomplishments of his life, those things that he was so proud of, to put them down, to put them away, that they might die, things that might try to drag him back into his self-importance and to stand in that resurrection power that new life that Christ had won for him. And what Paul's saying is that this is a mindset that you and I adopt in our journey through the Spirit in Jesus Christ. That the Spirit draws us daily, as Luther said, to drown our old self, our accomplishments, our focus on what we have done in the waters of our baptism, and to rise daily in this new life in Jesus Christ to realize that Christ has won for us the victory. Christ has given us forgiveness. And Christ alone is our standing in this life and in the next. It means that our living and doing in this world, whatever we have accomplished, whatever we have achieved, whatever we have amassed or realized, that our faith and our hope and our trust cannot be placed in these things or be any part of it. It is only Jesus Christ that we can put our faith, hope, and trust in because he alone is the one who can do for us what we could never do. And I love that Paul goes on to say, this is not a work that is finished when he says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. You see, Paul's talking about in his former life all those accomplishments, all that list of what he had done seemed to him at that time finished and concrete and something that he could stand on. But his new life in Christ, he realized, was not finished, nor would be, because there would always be that inner struggle within Paul and within us that our flesh wants to take back our accomplishments and the things that we do to turn our eyes off of the cross and off of Jesus back onto what we have done so that we can provide our own justification. Paul's saying, this is not finished. This is a struggle that I go through daily, as we do also. Luther says it in these words. When you hear some Christians say, I know concretely what it means to be saved by grace without works, and they say it is a simple thing to them, realize they have no idea what they are talking about. For this is not something mastered in one simple class. We are always in this life students, and we will never fully master it. Those who have learned its true meaning never boast that they have mastered it. To them, it is always something that is never fully comprehended. It is something that is always yearned for, hungered for, thirsted for. They never tire of hearing it again and again. And they, like Paul, know it has not yet been attained. So what are we to do in this life? 
Do we give up hope because we have not yet attained that perfection that we so long for to turn our eyes completely off ourselves and on to Jesus? We'll be encouraged by what Paul says when he says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul says the race continues, and we run that race. We know that race is long, and it lasts our whole lifetime. But by the power of the Spirit, the power of the Word of Christ in us, those things turn us from ourself, from our self-justification, to see the cross of Jesus Christ, to see His grace, the righteousness that He gives to us as a gift to know that our accomplishments and all we have done are pale in comparison and we keep moving forward, placing ourselves again and again as we are drawn by the Spirit to hear Christ's forgiveness, Christ's love, and the gift that He has won for us. We hear again and again a new identity, an identity that is not bound up in ourselves, but an identity that is found in Jesus Christ. We turn by the power of his gifts in our lives from that self-created identity to the one that was won for us in the victory on the cross and the open grave. May we too join that race boldly with, with Paul to press on towards that calling that Christ has given to you and to me by his death on the cross and by his resurrection. A new life a life of faith, a life in which we are seen holy and pure, not because of what we have done, but because of what He has done for us and freely gives us. Amen.